Welcome to episode 134 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. Uh, our interview today is with the outgoing Assistant Attorney General uh, for National Security, John Carlin. Uh, uh, we recorded that uh, a couple of days ago, uh, uh, but he has now left his position, um, and I, I'll give him some advice about uh, uh, that uh, in a minute. Uh, uh, for our news roundup, we've got Michael Battis, uh, formerly with the FBI and the Justice Department, now in our New York office, and Maury Shank, uh, uh, who uh, was our managing partner in our London office uh, and uh, remains associated with us on a variety of uh, uh, technical and cybersecurity issues, uh, uh, as well as being a private equity investor, director of technology companies, uh, and and uh, general um, uh, cybersecurity expert. Uh, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with the NSA and DHS, holding the record for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. I'm going to retire that crown, I suspect. Uh, uh, so let's jump right in. I, I wanted to talk about this one, even though it's probably not the hottest uh, news item of the uh, the week, because of just how... Uh, it demonstrates the uh, remarkable thrall that uh, 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 Silicon Valley uh, and really the media is held in by uh, uh, by the ACLU. Uh, you may have seen the story. It was uh, headlined by the uh, uh, New York Times uh, as police use surveillance tools to scan social media, ACLU says. And the story was about a company called Geofedia, and the story consisted entirely of uh, uh, big social media companies, uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, saying, yes, we've cut ties with Geofedia because they were um, surveilling our users uh, uh, in a fashion that is inconsistent with our terms of service. Uh, now, Geofedia, it's not exactly clear from the article what Geofedia does, so I went to their, uh, uh, some of the uh, website that was uh, cited by the New York Times. And here's an example. What they basically do is they scrape social media public posts and they uh, uh, reveal those public posts geolocated, uh, particularly in the context of law enforcement uh, uh, events. And uh, one of their examples is they said that, that they were monitoring Baltimore after the Freddie Gray death, uh, uh, and they uh, um, noticed that a whole bunch of kids at a local high school were tweeting or otherwise talking on social media about walking out of class and taking uh, mass transit to a local mall. Um, and when the police were uh, uh, alerted to this possibility, they went out to find the kids who had apparently actually hijacked a metro bus when they said they were taking mass media or uh, uh, a mass transit. I didn't realize that that included hijacking the bus. And the cops found their backpacks full of rocks, bottles, and fence posts. Uh, uh, this was the middle of the riots. Uh, um, now, I'm, I'm having trouble figuring out what the 
problem is with that? Uh, now, maybe, Michael, you have a different view on this, but uh, this strikes me as exactly what you would want the police to be able to do. They're, they're monitoring public events in an area that is a subject of civil disturbance uh, and uh, uh, looking for people who are looking for trouble and finding them and, and stopping them. Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, uh, the ACLU obviously has a problem because it says these platforms should be doing more to protect the free speech right of rights of activists of color, which, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not surprised that the ACLU thinks that uh, fence posts, rocks and bottles uh, are part of uh, uh, the uh, free speech rights that Americans uh, are entitled to uh, be protected when they're engaging in it. But uh, for most people, it's the sort of thing that uh, uh, the police ought to be able to catch up with. Uh, uh, and yet, uh, um, faced with one letter from the ACLU, all of these guys are bailing out. Uh, and, and maybe the most interesting thing about this is the way in which what had been a public event on a public Internet, uh, you know, 10 years ago, uh, if you wanted to talk about this, you would have talked about it on a publicly available Internet. Now that all the, this stuff is mediated by social media, uh, it depends on the consent of uh, Twitter, whether the police are able to watch public events unfold and to take action. And uh, it looks as though the hostility to the police, uh, disguised as hostility to surveillance, is going to actually make it much tougher for the cops to do their job. Uh, um, what I thought about, um, and I'll stop ranting at this point, is um, it's probably possible for the Baltimore police to serve subpoenas um, on the uh, uh, on on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram to get this information. It's just that. Uh, Doing that in a timely way is going to be pretty tricky. I mean, they can do it certainly in the in a riot. I'm not sure they could just say we're going to subpoena you for all public posts in a particular neighborhood. Well, you know, if the if the information was truly limited to public posts that were not uh, posts that were restricted to the friends or followers of the the people who were doing the posting, then I, I agree with you. There's there's no constitutional issue there. To me, the question is. Was this use of the data consistent with the terms of service of Twitter, Facebook, and whoever else was, um, whoever else's information was used? Is it consistent with the promises these services make to their users? And is it consistent with the, the terms that a developer like Geopedia or others sign up to? I've actually looked at all these terms of service several times for, for various, uh, reasons, and they're remarkably ambiguous on these sorts of questions. Um, and to a large extent, they, in, by my reading, they actually allow this sort of use in a way that I think would surprise users of these sites. So my reaction to the article was, uh, it seemed that the, the reaction of the companies was a little bit disingenuous um, when they acted as though, at least according to the, the article, they acted as though this was, you know, a gross violation of the terms, and, and I'm not so sure that's true. Yeah, I, I think that makes sense. That the uh, you'd expect people to write terms that give them the leeway to kick people out if the revenue that they're providing doesn't match the tourists that uh, uh, they're uh, inspiring. Uh, and and in this case, you know, the ACLU just had to come in with a little bit of tourists, and that was enough uh, to uh, to get Geophedia kicked out. But it is weird that 
um, the police's ability to get access to public data now depends on how Twitter feels about them. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, as you say, law enforcement can always use law enforcement means. Um, what they were doing here was using commercial means. And so I guess I don't have a problem with cutting off that commercial access uh, if it's consistent with the, the rules that the company's set up to, um, for anybody to access their information. Well, I suppose you could write a local uh, ordinance that says we're entitled to uh, um, uh, send a subpoena to people to get public data, and that would be, you know, prima facie enforceable, wouldn't it? If I don't know. Th- I'd have to go back and review the Supreme Court's decision in the, uh, the hotel registry case. Remember that? Oh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that's um, right. You'd have, you'd have, you'd have that you're, you're, you're right. They, they said just, just because you think it might be useful is not, it's not a good enough reason to, uh, to gain access to it. Well, uh, okay. Um, let, uh, we've, we've beaten that one to death, but I thought it was, uh, <laughs> interesting. Uh, so the, the other interesting piece of news, Michael, that I wanted to talk about with you, uh, is, uh, uh banking security. Uh, uh, the Carbonac gang is now, according to Semantic, uh, focusing on getting into the SWIFT network, uh, where we've already had another gang. Uh, Carbonac is sort of Eastern European, Russian, uh, and probably not government, uh, affiliated, uh, uh, and the earlier gang might have been affiliated with the North Koreans. Uh, so this is the second really sophisticated group of folks who are trying to uh, do long-term APT-type uh, intrusions into the SWIFT networks of various um, uh, uh, SWIFT members uh, in the hopes of getting a score on the order of a billion dollars. Uh, uh, and at the same time, the G7 has put out a set of guidelines for cybersecurity in, in the financial industry. Uh, uh, Michael, is that likely to have any impact at all on uh, these sophisticated APT-type attackers? I doubt it, uh, certainly not in the near term. It's, it's very high level, um, a very high-level statement of um, best practices. You know, it includes things like you should have a cybersecurity strategy uh, tailored to the size and complexity of your institution and the, the risk, your risk profile. You should have a response plan and a recovery plan. You should do information sharing, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's, you know, there's nothing there that uh, hopefully a, a sophisticated financial institution isn't already doing. Yeah. Um, you know, at the policy level, it's, I think it's, it's a good sign that, that important nations are, are taking this stuff seriously and coming to agreement on on some basic principles, but is it going to is it going to stop the likes of Carbonite? Not even close. Okay, yeah, that's kind of what I thought. It's uh, symbolically important just because the G7, which used to be a big deal in uh, cybersecurity, is apparently uh, getting back into the uh, uh, the fray, and maybe three iterations later they'll be talking about something that really uh, um, moves the needle. Um, speaking of moving the needle. Uh, Akamai has put out a report uh, that tells us that the Internet of Things isn't just being used for denial of service attacks on Brian Krebs at a massive and and truly frightening scale, but that uh, uh, being able to compromise all the 
uh, uh, digital video recorders and uh, cameras uh, uh, on the that are being hooked up to the internet uh, is allowing massive credential stuffing attacks uh, uh, on the order of hundreds of thousands of uh, uh, attacks uh, uh, through these various uh, 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 internet of things uh, uh, gadgets um, and uh, I. I have to say, the, the interesting thing here is the attacks are being, are taking advantage of the, uh, uh, the default credentials that were written for all of these things and never changed by the user. It's, it's pretty obvious that the users are never going to change these things. Uh, um, and uh, my question, uh, and Michael, you might have a view on this, uh, um, is, is this you know, I noticed that Brian Krebs, who was attacked, uh, said that he'd heard from a couple of lawyers who uh, who thought he should sue the manufacturers of the uh, uh, digital video recorders who put these shockingly insecure devices on the market um, and which are now being attacked uh, with uh, software that has gone, uh, that has been publicly released. It's now open source attack software for uh, Internet of Things uh, um, uh, hacking. Uh, And I wonder if we're at the point where somebody would say, okay, traditional um, rules about strict liability for manufacturing products, if they're ever going to apply to stuff, it's going to apply to these uh, $100 uh, items that you just pick up off the shelf in Home Depot. Yeah, you know, I don't think we're too far off from seeing that sort of suit. And, and uh, you know, you can see analogs in, in traditional tort uh, jurisprudence to um, the sorts of claims that, that could be made. Uh, you know, why why should companies be liable only to their customers if they if, – if their lack of security uh, jeopardizes their customers' information, and why not to some third party if that same lack of, of security uh, allows the network to be used against that third party? Um, it's you know you, you can see that there may be there may be courts that would accept that sort of a claim. So you know I wonder who who was advising Brian on on <laughs> on uh, filing that sort of a suit. I'm sure it was some. Plaintiffs' lawyers. Exactly, exactly. But ones. but but frankly, I would take that case. Uh, so if you are attacked by uh, uh, the new uh, uh, Internet of Things that hate you, uh, you know, give us a call. Uh, I'd love to do that case uh, uh, because these guys really do deserve it. Uh, um, all right, two international issues that I'm going to ask Maury about. Uh, um, the uh, Information Commissioner uh, in uh, the UK has come out with a um, sort of popular guide to what uh, you should do by way of privacy uh, policies. Uh, and uh, the Chinese government has announced that it's got a whole uh, initiative on Internet child protection, um, which um, always sends shivers down the uh, spine of uh, folks who do Internet uh, uh, work because of the risk that uh, there'll be a uh, an intrusion uh, by the uh, government built into the uh, policy. Um, uh, Maury, uh, uh, first, the um, the UK Information Commissioner, uh, uh, how is that guide? Well, it's pretty useful guidance. The UK Information Commissioner 
does a better job than most other EU data protection authorities giving practical guidance, and this is a good example of it. Hopefully, it will still have some force if and when we leave the EU. Um, it's pretty standard um, international practice on what a data protection notice should look like, but it's got some useful guidance um, on, you know, where you get issue uh, information by observing behavior or artificial intelligence or something like that, um, where you've got multiple data controllers, like, you know, a device manufacturer and an app that runs on the device, future issues under the General Data Protection Directive, and what formats you should use for a smartphone. So really useful guidance for anybody who's writing a data protection notice. Yeah, how about the Chinese? Well, you know, these are just draft guidelines and uh, from the Cyber uh, Space Administration in China. Um, they might impose some requirements on um, when kids can access the Internet for gaming. Um, and some companies are worried that it will require to run sort of bespoke um, internet blocking software on everybody's services. Well, we I all we all remember we all remember the Green Dam uh, 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 proposal where they said, and here's the software that you should run to protect children, and it was full of holes and weaknesses, and and was pirated to boot, uh, um, and it produced a big reaction. Uh, but that was like 2009. I'm not sure that. Uh, You'd get the same reaction from the West. I'm not sure you'd get the same reaction inside China if they rolled out Green Dam too. Yeah, although I'm not sure they're going to go there. You know, they there was a big reaction the first time, and this is, you know, the Chinese. I guess are about protecting kids, but what the censors really care about is preventing collective action, blocking access to foreign websites. I'm not sure that they're up for this battle again, and that it won't be as bad as people fear from the draft regulation. Okay. All right. Um, well, a couple of quick hits. Uh, the Justice Department wants rehearing in bank in the Microsoft Ireland case. Uh, 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 Michael, that's really their last hope. They're not going to get a uh, Supreme Court review out of this, are they? Uh, you know, I, I think they're likely to seek uh, certiorari if they don't get on bank rehearing. I, I think it's unlikely they'll get on bank rehearing. It's, it's interesting. They, they make basically the same arguments. What I what I chuckled at is they claim that the the panel's uh, decision is having a really uh, big impact on law enforcement investigations. Um, yet they cite no examples of that. And you would think if if we're really this were having such a detrimental impact, the government would wouldn't have asked for such a lengthy extension of time to file their petition for rehearing. <laughs> I mean, they got like a two month extension. If this was dramatically impinging law enforcement. They could have filed this brief in a day, in a, in a half a day. It, you know, it's twenty-page short brief. Okay, um, so you're gonna you're gonna write an amicus brief on why they shouldn't grant a, a, a rehearing in bank? Uh, no, I don't think it really calls for an amicus brief. We'll uh. see if they get it though. <laughs> okay, and uh, Russia has announced that it um, is going to break Western end-to-end encryption, like WhatsApp. Uh, um, and uh, indeed, that they they're, they're having so much success, they don't actually have to uh, ban the products. Uh, um, so, Maury, is this uh, is this a serious uh, announcement or is it PR? Well, I think it's you know, like Putin usually does. He's probably having to go. I doubt he's got security guys who can break this up, but you never know what backdoors they'll find. And meanwhile, he gets some interesting. Um, PR from it. 
All right. Well, that is that is kind of Putin's M.O., right? Uh, uh, let's try it on, see how it works, and if nothing else, I'm getting some PR out of it. Uh, uh, all right. Uh, that is our news roundup, uh, and let's move to our interview with John Carlin. I'm particularly pleased that we're doing uh, an interview with John Carlin, who has just finished up his tour of duty as the uh, uh, Assistant Attorney General for National Security. I'm here with Jim Lewis, uh, who's well known to uh, our podcast audience. Uh, uh, he is the um, uh, really the most quotable and, in many cases, the most thoughtful commentator on cybersecurity issues at uh, in One out of two isn't bad. Well, you know, uh, we, we all recognize, and I certainly have that same feeling, that given a choice between thoughtful and quotable, you know, <laughs> quotable is just irresistible. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, I, John, we're going to talk to John, I, um, has done maybe more to transform the Justice Department's approach to cybersecurity issue than anybody, uh, and uh, um, and has seen a lot of changes. So I'm going to start out, John. First, welcome. Thank you. Uh, and uh, I, I want to ask you, uh, looking back at the things that you accomplished, there are a lot of things uh, uh, that you have a right to be proud of. You've got now a NISCUS, a cybersecurity, uh, national security investigator in most uh, jurisdictions. Uh, uh, you've indicted a lot of nation-state actors uh, for uh, cybersecurity uh, invasions. Uh, uh, but when you, if you had to pick one thing that you really will say five years from now, yeah, I did that, and I, that's the best thing I did. What would it be? No, I'm always a little, uh, it's team sport. Right. And so w- one thing you, you do in these positions is you try to uh, unleash the, the talents of prosecutors, intelligence lawyers, FBI agents across the country. Right. And so to the extent we've helped to unleash them by sharing what used to only be kept on the intelligence side of the house and adopting an approach where we looked in each case to see not just could we figure out what the bad guys were doing, how they were hacking into universities, how they were hopping from universities into companies, how they were exfiltrating billions of dollars worth of intellectual property, but once we figured out how, now unleashing the uh, uh, the folks who focus day in, day out on how to disrupt it, how to right. cause pain to the adversary. And I think we've shown that Although it's very hard to figure out who did it to do the investigation and attribution, that we absolutely can, and we have been able to for a period of time. We just weren't telling anyone, so people thought it was anonymous. And whatever approach we choose uh, to adopt on deterrence, whichever tool we use in the toolbox, be it criminal prosecution or sanctions, diplomacy, Commerce Department authorities, military strikes, depending on the action, whatever tool we use, it's going to be dependent on that ability to do investigation and attribution. I think that's so. In 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 some senses, the the it is true that it's it's in the only in the last few years that uh, we have all recognized and the indictments have shown that the government is con- really confident in its attribution, confident enough to say we can prove it beyond a reasonable doubt, and that even without. Effective sanctions, and we'll talk about that later. But even without sanctions, it takes away an assumption on the part of nation states that they can get away with it. That's exactly right. And so it started, as you say, with uh, uh, 
we created this National Security Cyber Specialist Network, which really was just making sure that there were prosecutors, hundreds of them all across the country, cross-trained <coughs> on the Electronic Communications Privacy Act, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, how the Internet works, bits and bytes, and also on how to protect classified sources and methods on SEPA, the act that's uh, been created so you can protect those sources but still use it in trial, get them read in at the highest clearances, and then have the FBI issue an edict just like they had when it comes to terrorism, thou shalt share what was formerly on the intelligence side of the House. And that's the whole reason our division was created in the first place, the National Security Division. It was a post-9-11 reform, and the idea was we had to share uh, we had to share that information. And so that led to having the confidence, granularity in a, in a team that uh, found that evidence in a way that you could discuss it publicly, because there's fantastic work done by the intelligence community, but they are not tasked with collecting in a way where we would have to, uh, we might want to use it publicly. FBI, these, these attorneys, that is their training. And so in this case, uh, the first case of its kind was in 2014, five members of the People's Liberation Army Unit 61398, and in addition to having the confidence, which meant we wouldn't bring that case, it's a real case, uh, unless we were confident we could prove it beyond a reasonable doubt and have the right to defend themselves, but it also meant spelling out in detail uh, what had occurred. And so it's one thing to say generally China's doing this, but when you get into the details... Oh, no, it's exactly. When, you, yeah. when you've got ugly gorilla social media, that uh, says a lot more about uh, uh, your capabilities than just accusing now, let me ask this, though. There, I, I hear still, not, not as much, but I still do hear from people that, what's the point of indicting these guys? We're not going to jail them. <clears throat> yeah, so uh, a couple of different answers to that. One is uh, bringing the charges in this case, the alternative would be to not take uh, criminal action. And if you think about um, the idea of an easement, which most people understand, which is the idea in our own common law, which is if you let someone walk across your lawn long enough, they earn a legal right to walk across your lawn. And international law is a law of customary law, so it works It works the same way. So in a sense, this was a giant no trespass sign, get off our lawn. It's not acceptable to use uniformed members of your military to steal things like the design specifications for a lead pipe that you were supposed to pay for, or the pricing information from a solar company, or even worse, when then that solar company sues you for price dumping, their litigation uh, right. uh, strategy. So, and uh, it also worked out that this was, you know, their day job, which is another detail. It starts at nine in the morning, Beijing time, goes from nine to noon. They take a lunch break from twelve to one, unlike the, uh, us today, or eating as we do this podcast, <laughs> working lunch, and then uh, would go from one to. Six o'clock. So one was we we have to uh, the status quo of allowing this to continue, treating it as an intel problem when it's causing real harm to real victims now at a significant scale. That can't be the right. right. That can't be the right answer. And it did cause change. That plus um, I think the response that we did when North Korea uh, attacked Sony, where in 28 days, in that case, it didn't come in the form of a criminal indictment, but we did the investigation attribution, we made it public, and we said, with confidence, it's North Korea, and then imposed, in that case, sanctions and said, there'll be some things you see, some things you don't see, but there will be consequences, and 
because that experience showed that we need an executive order in place like we have with terrorists or those who proliferate. In that case, we were able to do it because North Korea is such a bad actor. So, so, so really, you're, you're yeah. bringing up the what I call the April Fool's uh, uh, sanctions yeah. program because, of course, it's, it was passed on April 1 and it has never been used. Uh, is that your greatest frustration? What is the greatest frustration from your time in government? So just uh, on the PLA case, then, then we'll <laughs> switch. But the other point, though, is that, as I said, these are real charges. And I think sometimes, because that was the first case, and it is true um, they are not in custody, even though I do think it led to the adoption of a new norm mm-hmm. by China, which they wouldn't have otherwise have done, which is significant. We also have brought, uh, there are people in jail um, so there's a case of an individual named Sue Bin, who was in a conspiracy with two PLA members, and he traveled. He went to Canada, got arrested on our charges in Canada, fought extradition while being held in jail for nearly two years, ultimately waived, pled guilty in the Central District of California, and was sentenced to over four years. There's a member of the Syrian Electronic Army, traveled, picked up in Germany, um, uh, similarly was extradited to the United States, and he pled guilty uh, <clears throat> just last week. You had, um, which we'll talk about more later, I know, but an individual named Farizi thought he was safe. He was over in Malaysia, um, got picked up on our charges, was sentenced to 20 years. So these are real, uh, they're not name and shame charges, they're real charges. People like to travel. It's a real consequence when you can no longer travel and you got to look over your shoulder for the rest of your life if your government decides to switch gears and turn, turn you over. Uh, the people who do this type of act, uh, activity, they think it's consequential, and that's just the criminal justice system alone without getting into the well, use they, of other they all, tools. They all want to leave the PLA because it's a sort of soul suck, uh, and start their own cybersecurity uh, uh, firm and then sell uh, services uh, outside of China. So, uh, yes, they, this, is, this is a goes on their permanent record in a way that uh, they have to worry about a little. Uh, uh, well, let me let me then pivot to... Before we do yeah. that, did you ever talk to the Chinese about the sanctions? Did you ever meet with any Chinese counterparts? So, um, I did participate in the meetings that we had the before we... agreement uh, out of uh, the Lynch-Johnson stuff. Yes, so in the pre-meetings before uh-huh. we came up with that five-point agreement. Yeah. He was probably the guy that they said. And if you... Don't respond. <laughs> we're going to talk to Carl. <laughs> okay. Because the Chinese were pretty vocal about the indictments and uh, hated them. Uh, so I just wondered if it ever, ever had a chance to... I've gotten to talk to them about it. I wonder if you did too. I don't think I've had the same conversations you've had. You can set that up. But, <laughs> but I've been really what, interested what, in your so reporting. <laughs> <laughs> They obviously were upset about it. Uh, what's, the, what's their, you know, elevator speech about why the, the indictments were wrong? Not enough evidence. You know, they, it doesn't. This isn't. This is diplomacy. So fact doesn't really count that much. It's, right. it's uh, we, we didn't do it. It's not fair. Why you can't sanction us? Uh, there's no evidence. Blah blah blah. Right. And the answer is pretty much what John said. Is there's tons of evidence. It was you. Here's the guy's picture. You know, tell him to dress better next time. That was about it. Okay, so uh, enough uh, warming our hands at uh, the fires of past successes. What what are you most frustrated by, uh, or maybe if you'd rather, uh, uh, um, Jim's in the process of writing advice to the next president. Uh, what advice would you give to the next president about um, 
things that ought to be done differently in your area of responsibility? So say there's three areas to work on. I think by gov- in government time, we've come uh, very, uh, very far fast for government right. over the last three or four years at bringing deterrence to the table. But we are doing an enormous game of catch-up here. When you think of this society, we moved almost everything we value from analog to digital space. We did so across the board in the private sector, in government, consumers, vastly underestimating what the risks were, particularly the risks by nation-states, sophisticated yep. crooks, um, and uh, ultimately terrorists. And now, we're, as a society, we're playing a massive game of catch-up. And so, uh, item one would be, we need to continue on an approach based on investigation and attribution, being willing to make things public and, imposing con- and then imposing consequences. And that means both resources and continuing to look at legal tools that will cause pain. We need more legal tools. I think we need to keep exploring, adding legal tools and applying the ones, uh, applying the ones that we have so that enforcement becomes the norm and cyber is no longer the Wild West. It's a place where civilized countries have agreed on international standards like we have now. One would be don't use your military and intel to target private companies for private gain. When they violate it, we do uh, enforcement actions follow. And so we've increased the speed, um, but we need to continue, continue. We need to do more faster. So that's one. Second would be sharing. So in the vast majority of cases now, companies still are not sharing with government when they've suffered um, breaches. So how would you do sharing? I mean, there's there's plenty of uh, give me signatures uh, uh, initiatives out there, and and they're they're working okay. Um, and when somebody has an active intrusion, which lots of people do have, um, some of them bring the FBI in, but uh, my sense is the FBI doesn't have the resources to actually show up and do anything other than take on board whatever the forensic investigators can, can tell them. So what, what sort of sharing do you have in mind that isn't happening now? So uh, one to your first point in terms of both, whether it's at the FBI, other federal law enforcement agencies, state, local, and regulatory agencies. So important, we got to invest more resources in um, those who do the investigation and attribution. Right. But so that should help with sharing. Right now, though, I don't I don't know that we are receiving so many reports. It's a problem we'd like to have where they're getting too many reports, but. So you when, think people are struggling with intrusions and they don't see the point in calling the FBI? Yeah, they see uh, they have internal conversations, some of which is outside counsel. You may uh-huh. participate in or general counsels or in the C-suites, and they think about what the risks might be of reporting, and uh, they balance those against the risks of not reporting, and right now they often make the decision not to report. Now, I think they do that without a full sense of what the scope and scale of the threat could be. In one case comes to mind in particular, Farisi, this is an individual where if you were the victim, so let's say you're a retail company today, as they were with a trusted brand, and you see a low-level hack that steals a relatively small amount of personally identifiable information, and your IT folks say, we caught them and tossed them from the system, then you get a follow-up email through Gmail, again, unsophisticated, not well-written, that says, give me 500 bucks through Bitcoin. Most companies today in the United States and abroad either pay the 500 bucks or they decide they can handle it on their own. Now, in this case, because we worked it together, 
Um, if they had done that, what they wouldn't have realized was that on the other end, it wasn't the low-level crook that it looked like, although at least one of them was trying to make 500 bucks. But it was a Kosovo extremist who moved to Malaysia from... Uh, Malaysia was hacking into this company, and then on the back end, he was providing those stolen names and addresses to one of the most notorious terrorists in the world at the time, a British citizen named Junaid Hussein, who moved from England where he was loca- to locate at the heart of the Islamic State of the Levant. He, he had a famous Twitter presence, uh, and he tweeted out something like, uh, you know, you've got your kill list, and now we've got ours. That's exactly, and that's what he did with these names. He went through them and called them for government employees and made them into a kill list and blasted it through Twitter and said, kill these people by name where they live. Of course, he died in a drone attack about two weeks later, which I always led me to say, you know, uh, I know which kill list I'd rather be on now. <laughs> Well, let, that, yeah. let me ask a question about the companies not being willing to share information because most of them, as you said, go through a calculation and decide that the risk doesn't justify going public or going to law enforcement. And what a lot of them say is uh, CISPA, the legislation that was passed, protects them from some kinds of liability, but not enough. So if you were thinking about a legislative agenda, what would you want to see passed in whatever Congress actually ever manages to pass another law? So I do think this area of information sharing is where we need to take a look at what our current regulatory frameworks are, um, what our statutory mm-hmm. framework are, and, and see if we have the right balance of carrots and sticks, where you don't you don't want to re-victimize mm-hmm. companies who are genuinely victims. You do want to incentivize them. Let's take the case I was just discussing. I think any company in the world who knew that it was a terrorist and that this might result in literally the death of their neighbors mm-hmm. or loved ones would have reported it. The problem in cyber is that as a private company, you don't know unless we can put the information together. And you saw a similar blended type threat with our case in the Syrian Electronic Army mm-hmm. where companies were paying off the Syrian Electronic Army. And it's because they were um, extorting on the side to make a buck. And the companies didn't realize this, mm-hmm. this is uh, mm-hmm. an instrument of the Assad regime that did things like spoof a terrorist attack on the White House and cost billions of dollars, so they were paying it off. So it, as we take a look at that, I mean, there's, there's a couple common sense things that just are left on the table. One is it's ridiculous to have 46, 47 different state data breach notification laws instead of one clear standard federally for, uh, for the country. So a company doing business in all 50 states it's only good news, and maybe I'll uh, enjoy this in my new life in the private sector, but it's only good news for lawyers. Uh, it's a full Weird, employment act. Weirdly enough, I know you got a couple more things, but weirdly yeah. enough, the, some of the privacy people I know object to a national standard because they say it will inevitably be less than what you have in the leading states now. And so you have... It's a weird... They, they, like, a, they like a system in which the most aggressive state... Um, really sets the, yeah. uh, the 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 standard for everybody that because be you, it, 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 you have to meet them. Sometimes it's Massachusetts, uh, yeah. but yes, you you have to meet that standard for them, and and you can't justify doing something less for anybody else. So I, I just else. brought that up because that's what I thought that too. National data breach law—it's a no-brainer, but it turns out there's a lot of opposition, and people like the ability to uh, arbitrage between states. So just a footnote. Yeah, I don't know how you get around that. Well, I think we do need to move, even though they're hard debates, because that's what that really comes down to, Mm -hmm. as to what the standard should be. But having 
so many different piecemeal standards isn't efficient for companies and doesn't provide the right incentives, I think, ultimately to come in or have the best defensive practices. And similarly, I mean, you don't want to have blanket immunity no matter how bad um, your practices are for treating sensitive data that if you report, you're immune. So you want to incentivize people to improve their security on the front end. At the same time, uh, we're out saying that there is no Internet-connected computer that's ultimately safe from a dedicated nation-state or sophisticated organized criminal group, including the federal government, as we've shown, with some significant breaches that have uh, publicly publicly occurred. So we also, uh, and we need to work with them when it comes to bringing deterrence uh, to the game so that we can hold to account those who are committing these attacks. I mean, you were former NSA, Jim, and and, uh, imagine what you could do and say, if the rules were you can get caught, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. You can get caught and keep doing it. I mean, yeah. it would be uh, open season. So we have to change that um, incentive. And so I don't have an, an answer, uh, but I think we need to keep looking at that balance. One thing might be, should there be, if you're in a particular regulatory space or others, and you've seen us start to adopt this approach, where now SEC and FTC have both said, we will affirmatively hold it against you if we discover a breach and you didn't report it to anyone in government. And we also will view it as a factor in your favor if you have, uh, if you have reported it. Another uh, potential standard to look like would be to empower someone in the government, say the attorney general, to certify essentially that this company took reasonable steps to protect itself and has provided information in a way that's quite helpful um, to the government, so they're going to gain certain immunities from either regulatory action. That's an interesting idea, because I I am struck by the fact that the FTC is really our uh, security standards setter in in these uh, consent decrees, and no one knows what the standards are until the consent decrees come out, Uh, and there are no regs, there's no adjustment to the rules, even though they've already had to, you know, kind of... um, revoke certain uh, guidance they gave people. They used to say you need to have really long passwords and change them all the time, and then they realized that changing them means that you'll never remember them, and so it's a bad idea. And they sort of half-walked it back, but not formally. You just have to kind of be a mm-hmm. uh, uh, sort of a um, uh, Kremlinologist of the FTC to understand this. Uh, uh, whereas I think if... Uh, Justice Department or DHS were saying this is adequate security, people would pay attention to that and they'd be able to say, I know what I'm supposed to be doing, as opposed to doing criminology on FTC consent decrees. And it's so sector-specific that it might be hard to, um, which has been a reason why both the private, in my engagements with um, Chamber of Commerce, with businesses, they didn't want us to set um, a standard and I think that's where the administration has been as well. Well, but there, there is a so standard. The, 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 it is not a perfect standard. It doesn't tell you exactly what to do, but it certainly tells you what to think about in a way that the consent decrees don't in the NIST cybersecurity framework. That's exactly. So that's the approach has been more, here's a general framework of how to think about the problem that could form the basis for, and the more we say, um, then I think it creates a standard of care and it gives something for... Uh, for civil attorneys to take aim at. So yep. if you don't meet that civil care, and it gives something for regulators interpreting reasonableness in the case of FTC, 
um, or as the SEC starts doing inspections, it gives them su- uh, a, a, a benchmark to measure what your uh, what your methods are. But it is because the technology changes so quickly, unlike other areas where there are very clear um, uh, conduct standards that you need to meet, I doubt, at least in the near future, we'll see a cookie-cutter standard. So that might mean, though, uh, you know, exactly as you say, that you, you empower an agency to give a determination that you've met the standard based on precisely what you've done in your sector that serves to... Um, give immunity. And some sectors have moved much further towards mandatory, highly regulated sectors and moved towards mandatory standards where you have to meet it. So let me, let me, let me raise what I think is one of the surprising costs of naming and shaming. We have established that attribution is possible and, uh, good attribution is possible. Uh, and I, I can't help observing that the Russians used to have the same fear of getting caught doing cyber uh, uh, intrusions that the U.S. government used to have. Everything the U.S. government does in this area is uh, focused on first not getting caught. And the Russians had the same uh, culture. Um, I used to uh, compare them uh, and the Chinese as the difference between... Uh, cat burglars and people who did smash and grabs with a 54 Chevy through the window. Uh, But now, the Russians clearly, not only do they expect to get caught, they're almost enjoying it. Uh, And uh, they're more or less taking credit for a number of hacks. Uh, um, And uh, that has has led to at least the naming by uh, DHS and ODNI of uh, uh, the Russians as the people who did the attack on DNC and DCC, and a promise from the administration that uh, there will be propor- a proportionate response. Uh, um, let's let's yeah. pick up on that one, because the one of the things I think, and it'd be interesting to get your views, is I don't think naming and shaming works. I mean, Vladimir Putin is not going to be shamed. So right. That's off the table. It's his name. It's our shame. Naming and shaming doesn't work. But there's a debate over proportional response, who should do it. And one of the things that strikes me as listening to people is that so DOJ and NSD have done more to make a credible deterrent threat yes. in the last few years than anything we've done ever. But still people talk about, well, what is Cyber Command going to do back to the Russians? And the answer is probably not a heck of a lot, a heck of a lot. What do you say about that? I mean, is, are we still too over-militarized in our thinking about deterrence? How do we get people to think about alternate measures like sanctions or indictments? Do you run into that problem? I do think it's important, especially in, in academia. It was viewed so much, um, it's often studied through the lens of international law and law of armed conflict, and there are a lot of debates about it, but um, someone in our space, when it comes to national security threats, whether they're terrorists Mm. or those who proliferate in weapons of mass destruction, the approach that we've taken for years now uh, uh, is an all-tools approach, meaning we're not going to be wet, we're not going to, our retaliatory tool won't necessarily be what they're doing, it's going to be whatever we think works to disrupt the threat. And that means being 
creative across a code book. And and so that's let's let's see how creative we can be uh, uh, now that you. Departed government, uh, they can. You can I, I, I always say, uh, you know, the good news about leaving government is you can say what you want, because the bad news is nobody cares. Uh, <laughs> and, 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 <laughs> Sad, but yeah. so what, to it, yes. what? What are the? Yes, it, it, it does feel good for about six months. And as you know, I, I, I clearly have taken that no to an extreme. No one clears your stuff anymore. It's like a, what a sense of freedom! You love it. So, what are the options? We, we obviously know we. We could, we could pursue indictments. Uh, uh, we could pers- pursue sanctions, although the, actually the April Fool sanction program is not well designed for this because it's aimed at stealing secrets, uh, commercial secrets, uh, uh, for commercial purposes. Uh, uh, but we c- the Russians clearly hate the sanctions they're under. And I would have thought we could say, uh, one, we're going to expand it, and two, we're going to use some cyber tools to expand it. We're going to do social grabs of the people who are already under sanction and find the people who are their closest friends and sanction them. Uh, figure out where they're banking and alert the banks to the fact that they're dealing with a specially designated national. There are ways to use cyber power to make sanctions more effective, I think. Why would I, and again, going back to the kind of framework of all tools, um, uh, first, in terms of name and shame, I do think there's sometimes... Uh, a misunderstanding where what we've said is you need to figure out who did it, investigation and attribution, both to show that it's not anonymous and because that will be the foundational step to taking action. Making public that you know who did it, um, not just to send a message to that particular actor so that all the other folks, nation states, non-state actors, even individuals who are thinking, what can I get away with? Start realizing not as much as I thought. I got to look over my shoulder. I got to take steps to protect myself. Right. That in itself is a deterrence because they have to be more careful. So that's well, only if they believe that something will follow. Because if they believe you'll name them, you'll shame them, and you won't do anything, right. I, I think you you actually diminish your uh, ability to deter. I, and I do believe in step three, which is consequences. Right. right. Now those consequences may not always be. Uh, Public, but publicly saying you're imposing consequences, some that you see, some that you don't see at a time and place of our choosing. Well, let's use North Korea's example. I think we used that formulation then, and then uh, the sanctions part was public. I think people also assume that something else uh, may uh, uh, may have occurred, and we're never going to. Uh, government's not going to uh, talk about what other steps uh, may have been. So that that framework of making clear to both of your points that there will be consequences and that means following through and having consequences. And so I wouldn't rule out uh, sanctions. In the case of Sue Bin that doesn't get reported as much, his company became one that the commerce put on a special designated uh, list as a company that you can't do business with without a license anymore, which can be a death knell. And that's something we used you know, with CTE in the context of Yes. Export. Um, and that very nearly was a death penalty, you know, for them and, and for a lot of American exporters. <laughs> so, uh, in those instances, we've shown, you know, that there are effective tools. And with each country, the consequence might change and it'll go into the calculus of, of kind of your playbook with that particular country and how they think. And some are quite provocative outside of the realm of cyber, just in their, in, in their behavior writ, writ large. And I do think it's important as we move towards this consequence-based model to apply it 
and say, look, this has nothing to do with our relations, particular relations with China or North Korea or Iran or now Russia. This is what we do when you cross red lines in cyber. It's an enforcement regime. So I, yeah. thinking about uh, that, I, I, one of the ideas that I've always thought was worth pursuing here, instead of mutually assured destruction, mutually assured doxing, uh, uh, they have been releasing a lot of stuff on American uh, politicians and leaders. Uh, um, is there? And I won't ask you whether this is a good idea, because you won't. The answer, but is there a legal bar to extracting Vladimir Putin's Botox records and releasing them on the internet, uh, or even releasing fake documents uh, in which he makes uh, um, uh, gender inappropriate uh, uh, advances to uh, members of the Politburo? I. I, I are we barred from putting out fake documents uh, uh, and releasing them to the, to the public? I'll leave that to when you have the general counsel of uh, CIA or others on your program. I'm sure Caroline will come on. Uh, I'm sure. That's <laughs> worth a try. Maybe a better way to think about it is the thing that really seemed to annoy them the most in the last few months was the corruption linked to Russian sports teams and the uh, close call of almost being banned from the Olympics. Yes. Uh, some of the other things. And my assumption is, being a bit cynical, is that the, it looks like they were on track to be banned from the Olympics and magically uh, they were let back in in many cases. And Magically, relatives of the Olympic Committee were released from uh, kidnapping. Right? Or, or money showed up. What, what about going after corruption? What can you do with that? Or... Frankly, the other lesson I think I draw from this is that it's the public rebukes yeah. that bother them the most. And the the other one, so I think Olympics bothered them a lot, uh, and that would be a fruitful avenue to torture them on the world. One of the World Cup. Yeah. I mean, that they, it's Russian. It's, there's got to be corruption. And then the second one might be. It looks like uh, Putin himself was uh, deeply annoyed by the Panama Papers, and so maybe that's the avenue you want to think about. Is what are the constraints on investigating corruption in an international body and then making that public? So, give um, where I am, I'm not going to uh, opine <laughs> on the, the, the different options with, with Russia, but more generally, I'll, I'll say that um, our adversaries should assume that nothing, nothing is off the table in terms of the consequence. It'll be proportional to the activities that they've done here. It will not always, just because they did it through cyber, be through mm -hmm. cyber-enabled means in response, although it may be, and that we're committed to this doctrine. I think it will be important for the next administration to show and demonstrate that they're committed to this doctrine as well. And it's going to take, I think you're right, mm -hmm. Stuart, over time. Um, we've already seen a, a remarkable change in behavior, not just... Uh, uh, in terms of uh, Chinese espionage targeting commercial, but um, with some of our other actions as well, where there really wasn't any fear or investment in protecting one's self if you were the bad guy overseas. Uh -huh. And that change we're starting to see, where um, there are real people doing this, and it's not keyboards, and those real people like to uh, like to travel, those real people worry about getting arrested, they worry about getting arrested by their own government, they worry about what might be done to them in, retali in retaliation, and now they are uh, 
uh, taking steps that they didn't have to take before to increase the cost, and some of them are getting out of business. They'd rather there's a lot of money to be made in being legit. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, and once you're they, uh, once you're called out as someone who worked for one of these spy services, you can forget about that. So, it, it's changing some of the incentives to keep with this approach. Though you're, you're right, we got to stay committed to it, and then. One thing we haven't talked about, it can't be America alone. You know, we, mm-hmm. We're doing some of this unilaterally. Next step is getting our international partners, and I'm seeing a lot of interest in what we did with my counterparts. Let me, let me ask you, yeah. and this will be the last question because we, uh, we want to finish up and be respectful of your time. But um, uh, I always thought that the most plausible place for that international cooperation to occur is around the principle that uh, every government's hand should be turned against people who hack banks and the SWIFT system, because they're all at risk and they have to know it, I, and they ought, to, they ought to be enthusiastic about using their control of the monetary system to punish and uh, prevent the monetization of the attacks that uh, we're starting to see on SWIFT. Uh, um, what's your sense about the prospect for that? I think you're starting to see, um, uh, just last week, you had an, uh, another major agreement by an industrialized country as to what standards should be for uh, financial financial transactions. And so I think you're, you're dead on in terms of approach, which is let's pick areas that are important to every civilized country and, um, and then come up with common patterns of defense where we all agree to take action. And it, it may be like other areas where it, uh, it takes being hit. Yes. Um, and being hit publicly. I mean, we all know you, you, you track very closely when the EU directive is going to go in and it will become clear there's, there has not been a magic shield protecting European companies from data breach. They just didn't have to report it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. When they do, I think you'll see a similar outcry, which is another reason why it's important to make it public because the government Democratic governments are not going to take action and impose consequences that has risk unless there's a demand. And there won't be the demand unless the public knows what's going on, including the victims. And then it creates, I, I hope, a virtuous cycle where that demand cycle is heard loud and clear. So you start seeing democratic countries take responsive actions, impose consequences, and then that causes the bad guy, the adversaries out there to say, hey, this wasn't it's not cost-free, and just like I wouldn't, um, I'd be loath to commit military uh, action because I know there'll be a consequence. I'm going to stop doing these provocative actions in cyberspace. So, John, I, I really want to thank you uh, for your service. You've been a, a remarkably candid and creative uh, uh, force in national security over the last several years, and uh, uh, your contribution to the podcast is uh, overdue but welcome. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. All right. Thanks to John Carlin. Thanks also to Michael Vadis and Maury Shank for the news roundup. Uh, as always, the Cyberlaw Podcast is open to feedback. Send your questions, suggestions, uh, uh, at least for interview uh, candidates, not for what I can do with my views, uh, to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Uh, or uh, give us a review. We're getting good reviews on iTunes and other podcast aggregators, and we really like seeing them uh, there. Uh, this has been Episode 134 of the Steptoe Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. 
Johnson. Coming up, we're going to be joined by the DHS Assistant Secretary for Cyber Policy, Rob Silvers, uh, by uh, Harvard Professor uh, Jonathan Zittrain, uh, and uh, by a host of others. And we'll hope you, we hope you'll join us for those uh, interviews as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.